I want to share this patient experience with you because I think we need to be more comfortable talking about this subject and it's got real public health implications as well. The other day when I was in the clinic, a young girl, a 22-year-old female patient came in and wanted to discuss a very personal issue for her. She was concerned that she was, quote, wired wrong, end quote, or maybe something was, as she stated, wrong with her because of the following. Now, she was otherwise healthy. She was in a stable, a safe, emotionally secure relationship with her long-term boyfriend. But even though she had engaged in receptive oral sex, they had not yet had vaginal penetrative sex. However, she was concerned because oral sex on the receiving end for her would never give her an orgasm. However, she was orgasmic and is orgasmic with anal stimulation, either self-stimulation or with partner insertion because they did have penile anal intercourse, but not vaginal sex. So she was concerned that she was wired wrong or something may be wrong with her because she liked anal stimulation and wasn't that interested in vaginal sex. So, as I told her, I was just thankful that she felt comfortable enough to discuss this because as women's healthcare providers, we need to discuss this issue not only for good and healthy sexuality and sexual expression, but because sexual stimulation from the anus, anal stimulation, can have some real public health implications. So y'all ready? Get ready, because if you're all a little bit uncomfortable with sexual topics, well, you may not like this podcast, but we're talking about female receptive anal stimulation, because outside of our need to bring this out of the darkness and out of taboo for open discussion, once again, it really does have some public health implications, and it's even referenced by the American College of OBGYN. So here we go. Once considered taboo or a subject only mentioned for gay males or in context of non-consexual sex, female anal stimulation has, well, come of age. From anal massage to anal oral contact to anal penetration, women are reporting receptive anal play with increased frequency. Anal orgasms are quite the topic of non-medical women's magazines like the always medically accurate Cosmo or Vanity Fair. And by the way, no slights to Cosmo or Vanity Fair. Why is that? Well, because anal orgasmic activity is real and it's being discussed more as normal sexual expression. Orgasms come in all different varieties. There's, of course, the clitoral orgasm, the vaginal orgasm, the G-spot orgasm, cervical orgasms, and now anal orgasm has gotten headline billing. The anus is packed with nerves, especially the incredibly erogenous pudendal nerve. Now, remember that this also connects to the clitoris. Now, historically, the clitoris was thought to be this little ornamental issue right at the top of the vagina and that was it. We now know that the clitoris actually straddles around the vagina and can actually have some anal stimulation because of its proximity to the rectum and the rectal walls. So it is possible to still stimulate the clitoral legs rectally. 
And so there you go. Published surveys in medical sexual health research have stated that some women describe an anal orgasm similar to the clitoral orgasm. It's been described and published as a, quote, pulse of pleasurable contractions around the anal sphincter, while others describe it, quote, a spreading wave, end quote, deep in the pelvis. Recent interest in heterosexual anal intercourse has been generated from several research perspectives. In the U.S., general population surveys have suggested that the prevalence of anal intercourse among heterosexuals has increased over time. Now, it's not possible to know from these surveys whether the prevalence of anal intercourse is actually increasing or, as some would suggest, that the sexual reportee of Americans has expanded to include anal intercourse along with with oral and vaginal sex. New data on suggested prevalence of female receptive anal sex came from the American Journal of Reproductive Immunology in May of 2020. Researchers found that 32% of all women in the study reported having receptive anal intercourse within the past 12 months. About 22% of women aged 18 to 19 reported having or trying anal sex, but older women reported rates that were as high as 40%. Now here's what's interesting. The researchers found that white and Latino women reported slightly higher rates of anal sex than African American women although they weren't able to dice out the reason why. This increase in the reporting of anal intercourse among heterosexuals does have implications for public health efforts to educate individuals about the risks of sexually transmitted infections, including those that may be transmitted through anal contact. All right, well, next, let's take a look at what ACOG has to say about, quote, non-coital, end quote, sexual practices. Oddly, ACOG recognizes that anal sex is actually termed, quote, non-coital, end quote, sexual practices. And that's also in the research. Non-coital sexual behavior includes things like mutual masturbation, oral sex, and anal sex. Now, why anal sex is called non-coital is beyond me, but it is. But ACOG does recognize that anal sex is a common expression of human sexuality. Adolescents and young adults may engage in this non-coital sexual behavior in order to avoid pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections. But as we'll cover in just a minute, having anal sex doesn't eliminate the STI risk and in some cases may actually increase the risk. Although non-coital sexual behavior carries little or no risk of pregnancy, women who engage in non-coital sexual behavior, of course, are still at risk of acquiring STIs. When engaging in oral and anal sex, most individuals, including adolescents, are less likely to use barrier protection for a variety of reasons, including a greater perceived safety of non-coital sexual activity compared with vaginal sex. All right, podcast family, listen, do you ask your patients about their sexual activity? I mean, we should, not only about sexual activity, but about sexual dysfunction, which we've covered in other podcasts. And remember, you've got to ask about all activity. Plus, if you just say, are you sexually active? I mean, what the heck does that mean? If you're not in the medical field or in healthcare, you're not even sure what sexually active means. So be able to break it down in patient terms. 
in ACOG's committee opinion titled Addressing Health Risks of Non-Coital Sexual Activity, the college states that it's important that clinicians feel comfortable with and do ask direct questions regarding their patient's sexual activity, including whether the patient has sex with women, men, or both, their number of sexual partners and their partner's sexual behavior, and the frequency of oral, anal, or mutual masturbation. ACOG recommends open-ended questions and gives some clarification so they understand why you're asking and not just trying to be nosy. For example, ACOG states the following approach, quote, because it's important to your health, I'm going to ask you about the kind of sex that you've had over the past 12 months. This will help me better understand if you're at risk of sexually transmitted infections or to see if you have any questions overall about sexual expression. ACOG also endorses questions or concepts like this. What kind of sexual contact do you have or have you had or do you prefer? Do you prefer penis in vagina, penis in anus, penis in mouth, masturbation, or what is your sexual preference? And do you have any questions about sexual expression? Things like this take things out of the taboo and help it come out so that the patient feels more comfortable to have these discussions. Also, in ACOG's committee opinion, it does reference the use of toys, and so it's okay to bring that up in a clinical setting. For example, ACOG proposes the following question. Do you use sex toys either alone or with a partner, and how do you keep those clean? Because sex toys can be a source of infection. End quote. So these are great questions. And again, it's important to feel comfortable talking about sexual health because if you don't feel comfortable, some patients may never have a diagnosis of female sexual dysfunction and that can affect their quality of life. All right, next, let's get into pleasure or pain. That's a good question and there's data on that. Let's get into that next. All right, before we get into any more data, we gotta say something right off the bat. First, sex should never, of course, be forced or continued if painful. A 2010 study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine looked at sexual behavior of almost 6,000 people aged 14 to 94 and found that anal sex was actually the best way to achieve orgasm, according to the women surveyed. Researchers found that of the 31% of women surveyed who'd engaged in anal sex during their most recent sexual encounter, 94% had an orgasm. The second most popular route to orgasm was vaginal intercourse at about 75%, followed by oral sex. Now, if you're like me, you want to know, well, wait a minute, why is there this big difference? I mean, over 90% of women in that survey who had anal stimulation or intercourse had orgasmic activity compared to 75 with clitoral or vaginal. That's a big difference. Well, the authors do go on to give a very important disclaimer. First, the women in the survey who said that they had received anal stimulation or intercourse had a higher percentage of orgasmic activity, maybe because they were just more comfortable with their bodies and sexual expression, and that wasn't taken into account. Second, is a possibility that having receptive anal intercourse or anal stimulation left available space, if you will, for clitoral or vaginal co-stimulation, and that wasn't taken into account in the survey. So the short of it is, 
Look, there could be other reasons outside of direct anal stimulation, although there's anatomical and biological reasons that can help explain that, and we're going to get to that next. But there are some other factors that could have gone into play there that explain the over 90% orgasmic frequency. However, some editorials have responded to this and said, well, who cares what the other reasons were? Orgasmic activity is orgasmic activity, and women's sexual satisfaction is important nonetheless. And that's true. Okay, let's take a look at a quick biology and anatomy review that can help explain the high rates of orgasms reported by women from anal stimulation. The anus, remember, is loaded with sensitive nerve endings, some of which are connected to the bottom or the inferior halves of the clitoral legs or the clitoral cruces. Remember, the clitoris doesn't just sit at the top of the vagina, but the arms or the legs, if you will, do wrap around the vaginal canal, and some of those nerve endings can be tied to deep anal penetration. For women, anal intercourse applies pressure also to the anterior wall of the vagina, and that's deeper and closer to the cervix and can actually be found through vaginal penetration. And this pressure through the rectal wall to the anterior vaginal wall can actually stimulate a lot of pressure and cause a favorable sexual sensation. Published reports have stated from women's surveys that prolonged pushing in that one place versus continual thrusting can actually achieve orgasm faster than just vaginal or clitoral stimulation alone. Also, female anal stimulation may allow for self or partner simultaneous clitoral or vaginal stimulation like we just stated in that previous survey's disclosure. Nonetheless, regardless of the possible reasons why women can have orgasm from anal sexual stimulation, the answer is that they can. And it all boils down to this. It's important to tell our patients that communication is key between them and their sexual partners so that no one is hurt. And more importantly, the partner responds to the patient's cues. And remember, this is also important for STI prevention, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. It's okay to inform patients to start small if they're curious about anal stimulation and possibly even with solo activity, something sexual experts have published and refer to as anal training. But remember that even with anal masturbation, lubrication is key and super important to prevent mucosal injury. Patients should also be informed about the proper use of condoms for sexual encounters that involve anal penetration because of the potential for STI risk. That brings us to our focus on public health and ACOG's stance on anal sex. So ready? Let's get to that last portion now. Sexually transmitted infections that can be transmitted through non-coital sex include HIV, human papillomavirus, herpes simplex virus, and of course the hepatitis viruses A, B, and C. Syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia can all be transmitted through these non-traditional coital mechanisms. All of these infections can be transmitted through oral or anal sex. Anal penal sex appears to be the greatest risk for SDI transmission compared to vaginal penile or oral genital contact. Now here's a clinical pearl. There are no guidelines for STI screening in women who report anal or oral sex and who are currently asymptomatic. Currently, selected lab testing for oral and anal STIs should be based on clinical symptoms and or behavioral risk factors. 
ACOG also supports asking about sexual devices. Sex toys, including vibrators, are used commonly in partnered sexual activity as an alternative to vaginal or oral intercourse or as an enhancement to sexual experience. Routine cleaning of these sexual devices and use of male condoms on sex toys are actually quite uncommon, so this education is key. Sharing sex toys should be discouraged. If a sex toy is shared, it should be covered with a new condom for each use and cleaned between uses. Now let's review something about store-bought lubes when it comes to anal stimulation. Now remember that I actually have an entire podcast on this subject in the archives, so make sure to check that out. But in brief, lubes are three main types, water-based, oil-based, and silicone-based. And this is part of patient education because they can use the wrong lube at the wrong time and that can increase their risk. It's important to use only water-based lubricants like KY Jelly or Astroglide with latex condoms, oil-based lubricants like petroleum jelly, cold cream, butter, or mineral or vegetable oils can actually damage latex. So remember, latex condoms do not use oil-based lubricants. For anal penetration, silicone-based lubes like Uber Lube are preferred. These tend to be thicker and higher viscosity, so they last longer and they better protect the rectal mucosa. Silicone-based lubricants are the most slippery, which can make them especially good for non-vaginal intercourse. Also, silicone will not degrade latex condoms, and they work well in water, and they don't evaporate as easily as water-based lubricants or saliva. Lastly, if using a silicone toy, though, stay away from silicone-based lubrication because like dissolves like, and silicone lubrications can destroy silicone-based toys. Podcast family, let's celebrate together a kind of funny first, because this is the first time, I think, ever in all of my podcasts that I've ever used the words anal lube and intercourse multiple times in one podcast setting. So thanks for sharing in this first time weird experience. (laughs) Listen, the truth is, this is an important subject. Anal stimulation and anal sex has come out from the dark shadows, out of the taboo, and into the mainstream sexual experiences. And it's important that we ask patients these questions. If we just ask if they're sexually active, well, patients may not even know what that means. It's important to ask about oral exposure, vaginal and anal, not only to gauge their sexual function or dysfunction, but also to discuss safe sex practices and the potential for STI prevention. So thanks for following me on this otherwise weird kind of podcast topic, but important nonetheless. And we'll see you all on the next episode of Clinical Pearls.